Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is my show. Thank you for being here. All I want to do on this show is share a conversation with you that I found inspiring and hope, hopefully that it's going to inspire you too. That's it. Thank you so much to everybody that made the first anniversary show such a success. It went nuts on the downloads. Absolutely nuts. Thank you so much. So much. It was really, really good. Um, if you do have any further questions, by all means, send them through. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Uh, or you can just reply to the uh, mail at on the mailing list and I will answer them. Or you can leave me a voicemail, osherginsberg.com. If you are new, please check out some old episodes. All of them are available on the website, but only the last 50 are on iTunes. My guest today is former supermodel, now writer for Sunday Style Magazine, Cleo Glide. She's on Twitter at Cleo, C-L-E-O, Glide, G-L-Y-D-E. She's amazing. I dig her so much. More about her in a moment. Speaking of Twitter, if there's anything on this show that resonates with you, please do me the kindness, share it with your people. It would mean the world to me. Just tell someone about it. 
That'd be really good. I'm on the internet. You can find me. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm not on Elo just yet. <laughs> uh, but I am back in Los Angeles and I am ravaged by jet lag. It's been a few nights of 3 a.m. wake-ups and honestly, my circadian rhythms are just all out of whack. So I'm... When I'm this tired, this overtired, my brain thinks I'm about to be mauled by leopards at all times. It, it is kind of interesting observing the unchecked panic that rushes through me the moment I wake up because it's completely baseless, but my body's reacting as if I'm being borne down upon by a great white while I'm in deep water treading water or if I'm stuck in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles, one of the two. My blood pressure just skyrockets. My heart beats through my chest. I get this weird, funny, metallic taste in my mouth. But nothing at all is going on. I'm just super tired. I can't sleep and my body's just trying to escape the discomfort. Um, that's just what I've got. I don't have a almost uncomfortable mode. I have a holy fuck, shit, fuck, anxiety mode. And I... It's okay to just kind of watch it go by. It doesn't make it any less comfortable, but it's it's interesting to observe. It is amazing to be back in my own bed, though. Oh, my bed. I miss it like a long-lost lover. My bed is like someone I used to sleep with years ago. We've bumped back into each other at a random party and decided have another deli hunts for old time's sake, and we remember each other's bodies like we never left each other's sides. Every familiar curve and smell is there. Yes, I have an intense relationship with my bed and my pillow. I just wish I could spend more time asleep when I'm in her embrace. Big thank you. A big thank you to Kai Brown. Kai Brown got me out in the ocean this morning for the first time in a long time. My first surf in about a year. It was superb. I've got spaghetti arms. I'm about five kilos heavier than I'd like to be, thanks to some incredible European vegan eating that I've been doing. But goodness me, it was great to get wet again. Absolutely great to get wet again. Superb to be back out in the water here in Venice. It really does make everything better. It really does, getting out in the ocean. I needed it because it was quite a shock returning to LA. After being in Amsterdam for so long and just seeing how a perfectly modern, educated society can exist with, you know, no cars, with just incredible quality of life and just really only using what it needs as far as uh, consumption goes. There's no Dodge Rams here or 10-lane highways. Everyone's on bikes, very conscious of what they're buying and how their purchases affect the world around them. But here in Los Angeles, it's pretty much, fuck you, planet Earth. I'm going to turn on the air conditioner and open the windows because, yeah, America. I mean, not everybody's like that. I know that's not the case. But the excess consumption of the society here, it just it really threw me. It really threw me this week. So I don't know if that it was that or the jet lag, but I, I bought some carbon credits this week. I thought, fuck it, if governments aren't going to do it, I can. It wasn't that expensive, really. And it made me feel a lot better about the impact that I have on the world and the world that I share with you. But that's what I do, you know. I do what I could do there and I'll continue to try to live in a less impactful way. But it does help me sleep a bit better at night. I'm really happy to tell you about my guest this week. She is a remarkable human being. Cleo Glide is a former supermodel turned magazine editor and now Sunday magazine contributor. Um, she's fantastic. We talk about how she rose from the stillness of a law degree in Adelaide in the 80s to the absolute Bucknalian excess of the Paris fashion and nightclub scene of the 80s, what it was like to be earning 
heart surgeon money at the age of 18, and then what she did once it was all over. Her insight, actually, into the final days of the Glamazon era of models is pretty remarkable as she shares her experience of when casting agents were no longer booking six-foot-two redhead giantesses like her, but instead giving that work to tiny, sunken-cheeked waifs and how she dealt with life on the other side of that whirlwind of partying, excess, and let's face it, attention. She and I talk about body image, that happy weight, what happens when you are making that kind of money and when it is all over. Then she and I chat about how she pivoted out of that world into the world of editing the very magazines that she used to appear in. When she was, cover- when she was covering Paris Fashion Week one day and then flying back to make sandwiches for Bondi Primary the next. Even if you've never modelled, this one, this one is full of hard-learned wisdom about having it all, losing it all, having it again. Now, this one is, it's a little old, this one, because, um, look, I rode my bike into the inner west of Sydney to interview Cleo in the bowels of the News Limited complex. It was a stinking hot December day last year, but we couldn't shoot the portrait at that point, so I held off until I could capture Cleo in all of her glory. So now me and my hero, Helman Newton, have something in common. We've both shot Cleo Glide. Enjoy. We'll get some level from Cleo Glide. Hi, testing one, two, three, four. Oh, darling. Very early Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Cleo Glide. We're getting in the TARDIS. We're going back to the 80s. How are you, gorgeous? Well, you know, I'm really good. It's lovely to see your gorgeous face. And I am someone who kind of lives in the past. I'm a bit of a fantasist, so I never mind going back there. Not a problem. Well, I want to talk to you about a lot of things um, because of mainly because of who you are now. You are an independent woman, you're a mother, you've got a highfalutin job, uh, you're read by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people each week, and you have done all this. Uh, it's uncommon for someone who did what you did in your 20s. It is weird to climb out of the trenches and go on the other side, because when I was in the fashion industry, the people that were scribbling down and doing all the observing, I was the, I was the observed. Um, it is very, very rare. And I have to say, knowing now what I do with the perspective of about 20 years, a lot of models find it very hard, for want of a better obnoxious term, I'll use Elizabeth Hurley's, to go into civilian life. They, they crash and burn. And to a certain extent, so did I, before I kind of slashed and then morphed. Um, because your identity is formed at a very young age and you're earning heart surgeon money at a ridiculously young age, it's very hard to go and um, do the hard yards after that. It's, and you sort of, you end up woefully underqualified in one sense, but, but having actually lived a really kind of bon vivant life with incredibly talented people right at the top of the pyramid. So you just kind of slide right down. And it takes, and, and you're also your identity is formed around your worth, not being your humanity, but being your looks. Yeah. It's as simple as that, let's be honest. Uh, so that's just perfectly set up what we're going to talk about today, because there's, there's a lot to talk about. Where did you grow up, Claire? I grew up in Adelaide, and I was always a little bit of a fantasist. And I remember thinking, I'm saving myself for Paris. I know that sounds hilarious. How old were you when I'm saving myself for Paris? About 12. How did you know? Because I lived in Adelaide. I, when we first came to Australia, I lived there. 
small town, edge of the desert, shallow graves in the hills. <laughs> barrels. Don't forget the pedophiles in the barrels. I... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's some OG urban myth work for, for, <laughs> for Adelaideans who are listening. You know, but I have to say, now that I live in the flashy, trashy um, rum colony, former rum colony of Sydney with the Camilla Caftan of it all, I actually appreciate the Anglo eccentricities of Adelaide a lot more. Yeah. You know, you've got the perfect Victorian grid... Um, you've got all that old money, and they don't do flashy and they don't do trashy. So in some way, it must have kind of got into my marrow. And you, well, aside from you and me, you never leave. You never leave. Never leave. Never and Adelaide leave. people loved the self mythology of finding it boring. So you can't call it boring if you've left, because then you're up yourself. But they are very happy to. But it's actually a little gem of a city. Everyone's got proper mortgage prices. Yeah. And so they all go overseas twice a year. Yeah. And they're actually very arty and very educated. It's a wonderful, it's a perfectly sized metropolis. It bubbles just around a million or so, just over a million. And um, so every element of society is equally represented and equally visual. Yeah. You can see all of, the, all of the city. You can see all the classes of the city as you walk yeah. around, which I really enjoyed. So you're in Adelaide. You're a little girl. And, and how do you find out about Paris? How do you find that you want to be there? It was books. What My grandmother was uh, a theatrical, very camp, outrageous Irish figure. She was a dancer. And so I grew up reading and learning English from all of her movie star biographies. Uh-huh. So uh, my, like, Curious George was, you know, Mommy Dearest. I swear <sighs> to God. So, uh, and I, I'm one of the most... One of the most crucial, I think, parts of my development was seeing Rocky Horror Show, I think, at about 11 or 12. Oh, my God. I was like, okay, the keys to the kingdom, that's where I want to go. You and me both. Really? I was eight when Dad took us to see that film at the Chanel Theatre <laughs> at the St. Lucia University campus of the <laughs> University of Queensland. I remember being eight and sitting there and uh, looking, mesmerizing. At Fra- looking at Frankenfurter, yeah. a man dressed in a dress going, I'm kind of aroused, but not that much. He's pansexual. He's yeah. just the Pied Piper. And yeah. then when I watched Susan Sarandon and Little Nell make out in the pool with the boobies full, I was like, <gasps> I yeah. knew I was straight. But I also knew that I had a little bit of something else in me. <laughs> Uh, when I wa- and I still do this day. I consider myself mostly straight. There's a bit of me that isn't. There's and that bit- flushed it out. Uh, well, no, no, no. It's, it's out there. But uh, that was a turning point in my sexuality without a doubt watching wow. that film. Yeah, it's incredibly erotic. Because that's what I discovered, like, oh, my God. It's incredibly erotic. And to this day, I find, you know, a fishnet, a title and a stately home. It's all working. Give yourself over to absolute, absolute pleasure. pleasure. Swim the warm water. Ah. Of sins of the flesh. So, I used to go every Friday night. And speaking and of sins of the flesh, I mean, oh, I actually once went in Paris. Yeah. Um, I went for the... Remember what they used to do before the age of DVD where it kind of took away a lot of the mystery, the participation shows? Oh, this is where I went. I went every Friday night yeah. in Brisbane. Every Friday night I went and we yelled things at the screen. Oh, I was 16 when I started. I went right until past when I was 18. And I remember that delicious agony of waiting and waiting for him to come on. And now you've... In a way, the forward and the rewind button has ruined that when delicious torture. When elevator with the heel. Um, I'm cold, I'm wet, and I'm just played scared. <laughs> Come up to the lab and oh, see what's on the so side. So you saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show and you went, that's it. I saw, I loved, it kind of conquered me. And then let's not forget, Sins of the Flesh, I was also at convent school. So uh, there's a kind of a, 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 a very kind of strong pull towards the glitter, the naughtiness, the glamour, the glamour of evil. There's a Frank Zappa song about Catholic girls. Yeah, well, we, we, <laughs> when we bust out, you know, it's like... Oh, yeah. 
thermonuclear. I lost, I lost my virginity to a Catholic schoolgirl. Really? I mean, yeah. Still haven't found it. <laughs> yeah, you, and, and I think that um, it's probably the, the shards of the, like, the bomb explosion are littered all over Venice Beach, which is a very sexy place. Yeah, my, my, it truly, it truly is. So you are, you're, a, you're a convent girl, you've seen the Rocky Horror Show, you're like, I've got to get out of it. Yeah, and I thought, you know, how are they going to keep her down on the farm now that she's seen Paris? You know, I just... I went to Paris ostensibly to study as soon as I set foot on those cobblestones. But how did you get there? I... What? And was it like on the, on the horizon the whole time? Paris, I was Paris, enrolled Paris. in law school, which was not my dream. And I suppressed all the other desires. And then what actually happened is um, subconsciously I found another way to do it without owning it, which was to go and study uh, in my summer holidays. So I, I'd started at law. I was far too young. And I was six foot two and everyone forgot what a baby I was because I was just such a powerful, physically powerful looking person. And I was a baby. And I arrived in Paris that saved myself for the popular pews of the world. Foot hit the tarmac. You arrived in Paris a virgin. Mm-hmm. Foot hit the tarmac, you know, and obviously, how delicious is that? I the mean, clock's ticking. <laughs> and the people appuse as twirling their moustaches, you know. The uh, did you re- watch Kenny Everett? Of course. Yeah, because that for me informs the French, your basic yeah. garden variety French sex maniac. Um, and they are, you know, and they venerate women in a way that I was craving. That I was just not going to get down at the Glenelg pub. It was just not going to, you know. I needed that. I guess, external validation. And everybody thought I was a model because I was so tall and I was clearly very foreign. And I was like, no, 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 I'm a student. But I used to sneak out of the college where um, I was a French language student and go to Le Bandouche. I cannot even remember how I found this place. What's Le Bandouche? Le Bandouche was the, uh, it was a converted bathhouse. And I walked in the door and I saw Fergie, as in HRH. I saw uh, Linda Evangelista. I saw a queen with a parrot on his shoulder. I, it was, so it, we're talking like a Bacchanali and kind of nightclub. Yeah, no, we're okay. talking Valhalla, the Valhalla of glam. And it was, and I never looked back, and that's how I ended up sliding into that world. And I became a Paris party girl and a student by, by day. And then eventually I got um, Who cast found. you first? How, who found you? Who was he? Her. Um, it was a lady. And she said, you've got to come into our agency. And I just it all hit really quickly because I... My real legal name is Dominique, but that'd be like a French girl coming here and instead of being called Coco, being called Jane. It just didn't fly. So they said, make something up. And I thought, oh, maybe I can just do a few months of this. And it literally took over my life like this sort of glamour ivy. Hmm. And I never looked back. Where Cleo? Why Cleo? It was... I guess As someone it, who's changed his it name. It was just campy and outrageous yeah. and um, really fake. And, every, and I have a really fake sounding surname, Glide. With a Y. <laughs> With a Y. Let's qualify that. And, you are, however, but, on the shelf at the pharmacy. So I mean, Cleo Glide is a ludicrous name. And Cleo took and the monster was created. And in a way, having the fake name helped me create the monster. Well, you were stepping into a skin. Yeah, I was stepping into a skin. And it was my own creation. And I also found that the gay element of fashion, I got to be big um, I'd never really fit into the hetero module of surfer chick, which was the reigning ideal of the day. Back We're at talking about eighty-seven. 80s? Yeah, so the late eighties. Yeah, and at that point, the alpha females. It was Elle McPherson, without yeah. a doubt. It was all Elle putting the fierce into fix Pearson. I mean, she was the ideal. She was very sporty. She was, and it was you know the kind of era where you'd have a topless shot, and it was all. Let's all pretend it's not erotic. Let's just go health. Yeah. Biotherm. But these women were healthy looking. They had 
big boobs and shoulders and hips and they stalked the earth and they asked for lots of money. And they got put in their box eventually by the designers who killed it by hiring a lot of interchangeable Eastern Bloc non-entities. But that was later on. But, that but was you, later were, on. you were there right at the start of it. You were there right where... And so well, you mentioned what, what was the gay element? How did that tie in with you being like this six foot two kind of... But dare I, you, you, you have, and I know you're a, you have a very, there's a very masculine element to yeah. your sexuality. Yeah, yeah. And was, would you think that was it? Yeah, they do love that kind of woman. They do love their Jones. They, and um, they also love their Judies. They're broken women. Uh-huh. They love a broken bird. They love anything, I think, that subverts the hetero paradigm. Um, and they also like, because you're taking away the whole sexual threat element, all the stuff that's really fun to do, like the smart, funny stuff, Gay men are like, actually, not only am I liking it, give me more. Like, bring it on. Crank it up. Smart, funny stuff like what? Well, just, you know, rather than having to dress to please a man, if you're dressing to please your gay bestie, you know, you'll put on a pair of angel wings and a tutu. You don't actually have to play any game except harder, faster, crazier. Uh Which is something that just exactly suited my temperament, which was expression. Because I'd felt, and maybe this was just part of my own pretentious wankiness that all teenagers have but I felt like I I couldn't express myself in the suburbs so for me to go into the gay zone where all these small town people had gathered and they also felt they couldn't do that we all egged each other on it gets better it gets a lot better especially if you're in Paris it gets campier (laughs) yeah so do you remember your first shoot um, I remember my first shoot, I was wearing a silver spacesuit and double row eyelashes and my hair had been whipped up and was sort of manageable with a fork, just lots of hairspray. And I was posing with a very 80s look. It was a beautiful German male model in a tartan Vivian Westwood suit. And we're both wearing crowns. No reason. Fantastic. <laughs> I've still got the shot. I'll show it to you. Oh, I can't wait. And... So we, you know, we can edit this out if you want. But who who was the uh, who was the gent that uh, showed the young Adelaidean? Oh, I can't wait to tell you that story, darling, off air. But let's keep let's oh, keep we'll it all talk, shrouded okay, in we'll mystery. Okay, we'll tell that. I'll tell, we'll tell we'll that. We'll talk over lunch. Oh, okay, we'll have lunch after this, and you can, no, no, and it'll. But bear in mind, dear listener, that it will be told. Yeah, <laughs> you'll winkle it out of me. <laughs> Just have a hidden have a hidden microphone. It'll there's be much a, more fun a, that way. There's a wink in that one. So the we'll first have to wait till my parents don't exist. And okay, that's copy hopefully that. Hopefully, a long time away. So the first shoot leads to the next shoot, leads to the next. And what point were you like, okay, university? Sorry, Australia, I'm not coming back. Well, my mother was like, don't come back. Because oh, my mother's Irish. Wow. She was very like, don't come back. Whatever you do, You've, she, um, you know, I think everyone creates a story, and the story she'd created was. Um, you know, the story a lot of migrants create on Australia is they're living in the creation of milk and, land of milk and honey. It's, and it is, it really is a great country. Amazing. My mother was living in the, con- in the creation of missing her old theatre days, missing her theatre childhood. Uh-huh. What a Philistine, hick outpost. So she is in that creation. Um, that was me. That's all right. Um, so, yes, yeah, so basically I think that she... Um, definitely influenced me and she was really intoxicated at the idea of me kind of going back into the kingdom the palace of glamour oh yeah so what did she do she fled the craziness of her childhood and embraced suburbia Mm -hmm. but i think that there's always what was the theaterness of your mother well she grew up as a theater kid so Ah. she was sort of grew up in this sort of thicket of chorus girl legs backstage Ah. (laughs) um and she ended up she had a beautiful voice and she it's quite poignant really because it was like a whole idea of this great talent that 
this great talent that actually never got fully expressed. Uh And I think that she sought, after the madness of her childhood where her father was a musician and her mother was a dancer, she sought the stability of a super conservative, you know, life as a housewife. But it was really not a thing. You open our linen cupboard and, you know, towels just fall out. That's not her gift. Her gift was her voice. So a lot of people listening, like, you're someone, you're in Adelaide, you've made it into law school, which for some people is the biggest goal of their life. A lot of people, I know I was really afraid of dropping out of university, which I did. I felt guilty. Still? I felt really guilty. I was dashing the dream, but like the selfish sociopathic monster that all teenagers usually are, as soon as I set my sights on living the high life, um, it actually also going into fashion plugged into just about every concern. Didn't have to go back didn't have to get qualifications, didn't have to work hard in the sense of focusing on study, which I'd done all through school. It was a little bit like being invited to a party and being rewarded for it, to be honest. A party with great food, a party with amazing people, amazing queens. Yeah, right. Great visuals, lots of creative talent. And, and And the party platform is Milan, Tokyo, Paris, New York. I mean, that's, you know, you're going to RSVP to that. Yeah, you're not going to go back to the law at Adelaide Uni, are you? And I saw a lot of young girls who hadn't put in my years finishing school, so they literally were unformed. They were really unformed. So they were, you know, as opposed to my... That's all right. As opposed to my... um, I've got this hilarious... This is packaged as a retro... Nokia. Instead of packaging it as dag- daggy, they packaged it as retro. But I guess the battery life is 47 days or something. And I don't know how to turn it down. I vaguely recall. <laughs> Let me hear. I haven't, held a, I haven't held a Nokia in a while. Uh, he said wistfully, God, you think that that was the name of a woman? I no, it's not a, a euphemism, I promise you. Tones. I'll turn it back on, I promise. I was at Optus and I said, you cannot tell me that this packaging says retro. It's five years old. Yeah. Hilarious. Tones. Incoming call it off. There we go. I'll turn it back on later. Yeah. So, so where were we? So where were girls um, unformed? So women that were unformed. And what? Yeah. So what, is, what does that look like? What are you meaning girls who got discovered at 14, 15? These girls, they, they did the sink and swim thing. So they're like, okay, let's stick them all in an apartment. There'll be either, if you're lucky, like a gay booker and some women, or if you're unlucky, like a straight, sleazy male booker that runs the agencies. Okay, the booker is the person that answers the phone and sends... They get you work. ...girls off for jobs in the morning. Yeah, they decide you're going to be the one they're going to push and generate a sense of excitement about. And what often can be the difference between a girl making it and not making it is whether she can just... You know, they hand her the Plan de Paris, the, the map of Paris, and say, let's just see what happens. And she's got to just go out there and charm and beguile and seduce. She, if she's got some incredible feature, like let's just say she's the girl with the husky, ice blue eyes, and someone needs someone from an ice for an ice, you know, for an eye commercial. She can't really put a foot wrong. But if she doesn't have that one standout thing, she's just sort of basic car carrying pretty. Mm. Then it's going to have to be about her. She's right. going to have to. And, and they didn't have any internal resources. These girls were plucked from the Dairy Queen at 14 by a scout who just saw they had basic symmetry and a bit of height. Mm-hmm. And that was the only similar quality. So girls are coming from all over the planet and that's the only thing they have in common is the height and the symmetry. You're talking facial symmetry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's it. That's quite arbitrary. So you're going to get a lot of different kinds of personalities after that. That's just the only thing in common. So what do you mean the personalities, like who they are, meaning they're easy to work with? Well, just in the sense of if you look at, let's say, a school photo and there's 30 different people, yep. 
um, their individuality and humanity emerges pretty quickly. It's the same with models. If you looked at the photo, all most people would see was the, was the looks. But if you actually, once you go beyond that, you're living in an apartment with six models. It's really, for the models themselves, it's about the personalities. Did you live in an apartment with six models? Oh, the best one was in Munich. There was this hilarious hustler called Hadid. See, I told you, you cannot get rid of that knockout. It's just, it's just like, fuck you, iPhone! <laughs> yeah, it's like, I will prevail. Yeah, yeah. I was um, here, I was born here, I'll die here. Yeah, it's like the old man in the Muppets on the balcony. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Hadid Denkar, who used to take me to a gay bar called Vibai Muti, um, he decided, I'm going to just flog these t- hick teenagers for cash. So he turned his apartment in Munich into a beehive. It was literally like a honeycomb of cubicles with one single bed in each cubicle. And all these poor 15-year-old hick kids from America who were trying their luck on the German catalogue scene would, were actually stuffed into this apartment. Oh. And they were just watching, you know, Europe and MTV. And they didn't have the maturity to say, hey, maybe see a museum, maybe take a German lesson, maybe ride the bike in the park. They were that young. They didn't even know how to enjoy where they were. And so what was it like? You were, what, 19 at the time? Yeah, I was about 17 or 18 and just poles apart because I had more inner resources simply just because I was older, which is probably a better idea. I mean, a lot of these kids were, you know, dating 50-year-old Italian oh. playboys and sculling the scotch and coke by 15. Now, tell me about that. Like, what was it like that? <laughs> when you saw that, what was that like? I th- well, at the time, I thought it was kind of fabulous. I mean, now I'm a mother, I think, oh, my God. At the time, you know, I remember... It was just exciting. I remember being picked up by Prince Egan von Furstenberg riding shotgun on his motorbike in a blouse with, that was sheer chiffon with no bra on the way to a private dinner party at some crazy, you know, 19th century palazzo. I mean, nuts. You know, it's just mental. And, and even to a certain point, even though I was leaps and bounds ahead of... As an, you know, as an Australian, I had a lot of these really hick 15-year-olds from the sticks. I was still way behind where I am now. So I was still vulnerable and my identity, I was just internalising my lack of worth. You know, ultimately, you don't, you're not, you don't think that you've got worth and you need it to be conferred on you by the photographers and the bookers and the designers that will then say you are worth something. You become, you're very young and impressionable. Now, how long, how hard did that get drilled into you? Because it's obviously, that's changed in you now, but... Yeah, it took a while. Um, Yeah, no, I actually did a few courses like decades later and they really were quite shocked at some of my, when I would be coached and they would really distinguished that my entire sense of worth was based on attractiveness, which makes ageing kind of crap. Yeah. Because then you're kind of going to die for all intents and purposes. Let's talk, let's just flash back just a second now. I, I spoke with Annalise Breikensick uh, a little while ago and she was talking about her when she began. This is an era when there was minimal retouching of photographs, if any. Whereas now, like, just the nostrils are the only thing that needs to turn up, really. Basically. So this is an era where there was no liquify tool, which is where you can squish things and stretch things. And, and so you had to look like you look in the magazine. What kind of... I'm guessing the fridge wasn't very full in that apartment full of girls. <laughs> oh, honey, are you kidding? I had to starve myself. I'm, like, couture was great for me because the clothes are literally literally created on your frame, and which is heaven if you have an eating disorder because you can just roll with whatever's going on. But for the ready-to-wear, 
I'm a massive, massive female, and even by the standards of the day, the skirt was this little munchkin skirt. Now, strangely, it never occurred to me to just say, screw the show. That just, just somehow wasn't even an option. It was more like, how am I going to do this? Yeah, wait a second. Wait, hold on a second. I don't know enough about this. Tell me the difference between couture and ready-to-wear. So couture is, um, the, couture is the way all clothes used to be made, um, either at a very high level by a, you know, a couturier or by a tailoress for the people that didn't have much money. All clothes were just made on your body and tailored for you. Uh-huh. Ready-to-wear is actually a very new phenomenon. Ready-to-wear is when it's just made in a factory or made in, in bulk and you just kind of have to try So when work. I had my wedding suit made for me... That's couture. Oh, I thought, okay. Tailoring. I thought yeah. it was bespoke. Well, it's the same thing. Yeah, bespoke. It's the okay. same kind of idea. Now, couture implies an extra level of rarefied artfulness, embroidery, um, and all of the... All of the exquisite crafts that make French couture so special, you know, working way beyond the normal practical concerns to create a piece of art. Right, but a wearable piece of art. Like, it's, it's a piece. Yeah. It's not a, it's not yeah. a shirt. It's and you a- get all those ta- Texas oil wives, you know, with hair as big as a planet rocking up and having their 12 suits made at the Saint Laurent Couture House Got in the it. 80s. So, for couture, it was amazing because they were, des- they were measuring it to your body so it didn't matter. Yeah. But with the ready-to-wear stuff... I still had to... The high fashion ideal is what barely exists in real life, which is really tall and really skinny. Because usually really tall comes with really big bones, i.e. me. I'm like, I've got a big Irish bartender's body, busty. So um, to try and squeeze into that little mofo, it wasn't easy. You know, I did everything. I did the green grape diet. You know, I once fainted in New York because I'd been eating green grapes for 10 days. And the last thing I remember was two my two drag queen flatmates fighting over who was going to get my green llama coat if I died. Oh. <laughs> Fabulous. Charming. <laughs> Do they have cool drag queen names? <laughs> well, it's funny because um, Zoldi w- later went on to make costumes for Michael Jackson <laughs> and Matthew's like one of the most incredible creative, you know, directors, photographers. Um, Damn. Uh, and you actually know Matthew. Matthew later morphed into being just a sort of a freaky artist who does looks on himself. Matthew, who came over to our place when we watched The Royal Wedding? Yeah. That's him? Yeah. We used to live in the Chelsea Hotel, which was sort of wacky New York clubbing scene ground zero. It's like the Mount Rushmore of insane clubs culture. And it just had so many wild artists. There. It sounds like like I've been, I've lived in like daggy apartments that <laughs> you sound like you've lived in the most amazing share houses ever. They're the most amazing share houses ever. One of my favourite share house stories. I just interviewed Lloyd Simmons from Salon, who's now this makeup guru. Because now when I go back to Paris as an editor, all these young Turks are now the establishment. Um, and he and I remember this one amazing friend of ours, Louise Moon. She was she had like a shaved head. Um, she's gay, so she had the full Monty, you know, the shaved head, the nose ring at a time where nose rings were not, you know, they, they were designed to kind of horrify and shock. Um, and, you know, the ripped jeans and the, and the hobnail boots. And I, she said, oh, you can stay at my place because I'd rented my place out while I was at show week. She said, yeah, stay at my place. She told me where the key was. I rock up and there's this whole apartment filled with frothy 50s dresses with rickrack and petticoats. And I'm like, my circuits were just jamming. Like, what the... And then this girl just bursts in the door and she's a speciality model, the kind of which they love in Germany, like, you know, the kind of plus size with the beehive and the vintage outfits. And it was her wardrobe and they were flatmates. So you had this fabulous power dyke who was just working the whole masculine thing. 
and then you had this crazy girl with a beehive and a, a, that's the kind of thing that would just happen. And she was a lounge singer, part-time model, and she used to do a song called Double Agent Double D. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I do. <laughs> that, those were the flatmates, drag queens, wow. makeup artists. Wow. So when you're a, when you're a model now, you've, you've mentioned that you lived in New York, you lived in Paris, you lived in Munich. Do you just get just like endless invites to fancy parties? You don't just go to the pub with friends. You, no, that's right. I remember once we were invited to Malcolm Forbes Palace in Tangier and we spent like four days putting together a look and we went to the markets in Tangier and bought these male wedding robes. And then every male that came with us we just pinned down and kind of ringed his eyes with coal and pinned jewels and turbans it was just so gay it was so gay wow what that's <laughs> at any point did you i mean this is pre-facebook how did what did the people back in adelaide think about what you were doing i find that the adelaide the australian thing of don't get up yourself kicks in so my parents friends loved hearing about my adventures but I had to be a little bit more tentative with my own generation because even though there was a huge amount of affection there, I didn't want to come in and grandstand. So we all just played it down. And in a way, coming back once a year to Australia was like this refresher where I could just kind of... Le- I came... I had all this exotic plumage that didn't make sense in Adelaide, you know, when I'd go and visit all my old schoolmates. Like I'd have a Moschino dress with, with eight sleeves and then I'd rock up in Adelaide and it was almost easier just to kind of put them in the wardrobe yeah. and just lounge around and laugh about wagon wheels in the old days and Malvern stars. And, and in a way, Adelaide and Australian culture became exotic to me. It became ah. this sort of mythical childhood yeah, land. right. And I absorb the new crazy as the new normal. I've got to say, Cleo, I really think as a culture we could do without that. It doesn't... In fact, I think it benefits us to be happy for our friends who are succeeding. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for us to drag the energy down. But media is a bit funny. Like, Remember that great Gore Vidal quote where he said every time a friend of his book goes to the top of the bestseller list in the New York Times, a little bit of him dies? <laughs> <laughs> Still, I don't, I don't, there's, in this world where this internet is just so full of snark and we're just so yeah. busy sh- tearing each other down for doing well. I'm fascinated at the human capacity to actually go evil as soon as there's a little bit of anonymity. It's fascinating how Isn't it? easy that happens. Like Russell Brown was saying, you know, when he reads, you know, die, we hate you, you vile die, he goes, do you need a hug? I mean, really? Like, yeah. So I think um, the only way We're is pack to animals. We're, all we need is one person yeah. to make the turn and the whole herd will charge. Interesting. That's all we need. Yeah, it, it's actually re- everyone's a bully. There's a bully in everyone that's sitting, what, you know, eating their Oreos. People just need permission to behave. You just need one person to say it's okay and people will do it. And there's horrible examples of that in history, but there's also amazing examples of that in history. I used to, on um, when we do those Channel V shows, remember my director told me that. He said, most, most powerful thing you can know about human beings, they just need permission to behave. Now, that's a very powerful thing to know. You can tell them, right, everybody, let's riot, and they'll riot. Or you can say, right, everybody, let's all hug each other and pick up rubbish at the end of the show, and they will. And that's what we did. That's exactly... I would say, thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. Do me a favour. We've all had a great day today. Please, we don't want to... You know, you live here. Um, please do us a favour. Pick, pick up the rubbish around you and people will pick up rubbish around them. Did you ever want to say let's riot just as an occasional palate cleanser? I've been in riots and nearly died. There's no way I want to do that. No, 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 no. No, it was horrible. No, but like, that's what I'm saying. It's like people just need permission to behave. So anyway, um, it sounds like the glamorousness was as glamorous as I can, I can imagine. Like, yeah, and of course, look, I know that the, 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 the rule of thumb is that glamour are empty calories and you've got to crash and burn at some point. So When did you know 
it was starting to turn. When did, what was the first glimpses of the event horizon starting to approach? When I started seeing, like, the new crops of model was, like, eight crops down or something. And, I, you know, you become established, but the irony about becoming established in fashion is it's actually got the germs of your own destruction. So just as you're kind of getting to the point where people are calling for you, you're not calling and hustling them, everybody knows who you are in that smaller context of that time. Um, let, and me, you... let me stop you. I don't want to get to this part of the story just yet. Okay. Because we have to pass through the Helmut Newton moment. Yeah, there's so many more fun moments. There's so many more fun moments. Um, Helmut Newton is someone who, just like Frankenfurter, who is this pansexual beast, the weird German artist thing about Helmut, I completely related, obviously, to the size of the women and the he vignettes. Would, now, Helmut Newton is my favourite photographer. Yeah, he him. would have loved you. Well, I loved him right back. What, what actually six foot two, that just, you're just all women from head to toe. I was five years too late because what happened was he, um, of course, worked here. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here, which is a lot of people didn't realise. For years. When he was having his French Vogue moment and he was sort of saying, well, let's do the sex shop photo, but in high fashion. So it's this delicious frisson between turtle sleeves and high artistry. That was in the Jerry years. That was in the Jerry Hall years. So that's like late 70s. Uh, and I was still, you know, thumbing through my old copy of, um, you know, Doris Day's autobiography at that point. But um, when – one thing I loved, apart from the power alpha females stalking the earth, I loved the rich jet set vignettes. So I loved the rich bitch who was clearly cheating on her old husband with the chauffeur. That whole relishing of the evil woman, that film noir kind of take, it was just – I stuff in the back of I the limos that, you know, the, the – the photo, like the, the the woman on the bed with just like a, like a drag king in a suit smoking a cigarette in the foreground. Does it get hotter? Oh man, I know. that was that was how I knew. Like between that, because Dad had a Helmut Newton book as well. So between the Rocky Horror Show and Dad's Helmut Newton book, I mean, like I was. They called set. you forward. Like I knew what I knew what kind of women I like. That's the women I fell in. That's the women that first aroused me. That's the yeah. that's the arousal I chase yeah. in my sexuality. I chase that kind of woman. Yeah, and they toss down butter drenched lobster, and they call the shots, and they um, kick the man out, and it's hot. That's hot. 
So how did you come to cross paths with Helmut Newton? So Robert Altman was coming to town, and in retrospect, the film Pret-a-Porter was a little bit of a disaster critically and commercially because he actually, as Rupert Everett said in his memoirs, he chose the wrong designer. He chose a woman called Sonia Riquel, who'd been kind of out of the scene for 20 years, and so it was all a little bit dated and had the look of it. But at the time, there was this huge sense that he was going to do for fashion what he'd done for Hollywood, and and just turn the Klieg light on, kind of as sort of a, the slow stirrings of the reality TV movement to come. And he decided to send out an invitation to all of the um, beautiful people and say, here are the names of the characters that all the stars will be playing. Please only use those. Come and play. And he was just going to film the party. So it was kind of like being in Thunderbirds with all these bobble-headed celebrities. It was like, what? Cher. Marcello Mastriani. Sophia Loren. It was just, it just, it was too big, too crazy, too surreal. So the only thing to be done was, of course, that all these big, fat, crazy joints got passed around, <laughs> made it even crazier. And I was completely nuts about Whitnell and I at that time. It had probably broken two, three years before that. Richard E. Grant was there dressed as the ludicrous, over-fruity, overdressed designer, um, the pretentious, wacky, crazy artist. And he was great. And Rupert Everett was there. And he was in character. And we just literally spent the whole night frolicking with all these freaks um, and running around and misbehaving. And at one point, I, ha- I was wearing a cobalt blue silk skirt suit, super tight skirt. And at one point, all of my stockings were ripped and destroyed, just in the middle of cartwheeling around this beautiful Napoleon III mansion in the middle of a park. You, where you're we cartwheeling. Filming. Cartwheeling. I can't cartwheel, so I don't know what came upon me. I mean, it was nuts, that party. And all of a sudden I heard click, 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 and Helman Newton did a whole role just of me and my leg. He's standing behind you. He loved the fact that my whole look had started to kind of unravel. And I would kill to get that photo. <laughs> They're just sitting in his archive somewhere. Somewhere. And he, and he said that he liked my red hair. Wow. And then he um, disappeared into the crowd and kept snapping. I know. And he, there was this lovely sort of knowing, crumpled, uh, this kind of intensity that was just, but quietly rumpled intensity. Like he was just really staring and then just quietly snapping away. And you could see that he had that, that kind of almost ease of a vampire. Like I was a little bit transfixed by him. And I think that's how he got women to do what he got them to do. Really? Because I think they were kind of transfixed by his vision. It was just very strong what he wanted. And all whether they're gay or straight, when that alpha male quality of I'm creating this, this is my vision, like the Cherry Mugler fanbot cyber princess from sci-fi of his dreams, like that's his crazy, twisted, fabulous, demented gay fantasy of women. When you enter into the world of someone who's that intentional, you, you want to become that. You want to please them. He's almost like creating this space for with into which you just kind of not necessarily flow but get sucked into yeah he's just creating this wow yeah because and i mean you know no catholic girl doesn't have a vampire fantasy where it's all not your fault and you're just totally (sighs) transfixed and hypnotized and it's all not your fault whatever happens next that handbasket to hell all somebody else's fault wow (laughs) Wow. do you remember how that party ended up are you in the movie I think, I think, look, I've watched it and I think there's a, maybe a flash, but I think we got cut out. And you know what? That, all that footage that he has, it would be sensational to actually see it because that party was crazy. 
And, and you were actually unwinding. And because all of the stars were accessible because they were playing fashion freaks, they couldn't give you any grief. They couldn't put up the wall. They had to just play along. If you went up with them, they had to keep going with you. So Kim Bassiger was there playing the vacuous fashion reporter. And um, we just went up and approached everybody. With cameras rolling. Yep. Documentary style. Yeah, it was a really interesting idea. Wow. I have to go back and watch it again. I actually... We should watch it together. I would like... I would actually... Perfect. We'll have a movie night. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to do a movie night with you for quite... Well, remember you said stop everything when you heard that I hadn't seen Die Hard. The first oh, one. Yeah, and you, I've seen just about everything known to man. It's it was my favourite Christmas movie. It was a weird gap in my knowledge and you said stop the car. You literally reversed the car. 180 yeah. pivot. Yeah. And we went back. Well... Die Hard and Lethal Weapon are my two favourite Christmas movies. They both set, they both set around <laughs> Christmas in LA. So that's your version of Jimmy Stewart's It's a Wonderful Life. I did go and see It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life in New York last year on Christmas Day. It oh, was pretty good. Beautiful. It was just pretty good. It's the small town USA of go. It's a it's a ghostly vision, and you think, what happened to that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's now oh, it's look, I, can't even, like, I can't even imagine like where do boys come into this. Like, they don't. No? I, um, I had boyfriends, you know, I had male model boyfriends. I actually had beautiful boyfriends looking back, but I didn't appreciate it. And my first boyfriend was much, much older. He was, um, he was uh, a lovely, lovely man. I was too young. I was just a callous young female. What's to be said about male model boyfriends? Like the, male, the men that... They're like chicks. They're objects. They're just so chick. That's why it doesn't stick. I mean, they're just as fat. They're just as in concerned about their look in the mirror. That's not good. That's not. That's not good. But God, they were hot. I was. I, I, <laughs> I have a high eight footage with this taken in this big clunky camera, and we would just party in like Tokyo. We'd be locked up, and we'd invite like six of the male models around, and they were our mates. And one would be like this Thor, Chris Helmsworth, like God, and the other one would be this Puerto Rican. Trainer. I mean, they were just ridiculous, but they could relax with us because we were inviting them over. We weren't some 50-year-old Italian designer trying to get in their pants. We were actually saying, hey, do you want to just come and watch a movie and eat chocolate and we'll make some noodles? Uh-huh. They needed that as well. You kind of need to just be with people that are neutralised and just, you know, and a lot of the girls in the cities play the game of going out and having the free meals with the sleazy older guys and you just as I think you have way more fun with your queens at home. What um when you when you as you said when you identify so strongly with how you are perceived visually mm. how does that affect your sense of worth within a relationship when you're in that kind of in that you're zone? You're constantly auditioning. You're constantly auditioning. Um you know and I think that you're uh you become obsessed about what you're going to book. You become obsessed about um, not being left out, being uh, you start to get used to seeing your own image in all the magazines of the city and, and on billboards, and it's really weird. It's a weird gig. You um, see yourself through the eyes of people that look up to you because they know they're going to see you at a show, and then they're really kind of dazzled afterwards by you. And that's all projection, and it's all just in their head, but it becomes something that you become addicted to. And in those days, it was an insider world. You know, now you'll have reality shows about girls rocking up in Paris, but in those days it was a small world where the fame was only very internal, except then the supermodel phenomenon was born and they became celebrities as such where they could command... They were the most important person in the room, whereas usually it was the photographer uh-huh. or the designer or the client. And what, what caused that, do you think? I think that when the celebrity aura that was created around making a fuss and, and making a first name, bold-faced name out of Naomi 
uh, Christy, Cinder, um, Cindy and Linda, all of a sudden it filled the vacuum that had been created by 90s actresses that just were like playing it down that weren't doing glamour, that weren't doing the whole Joan Collins thing. Oh. There was a vacuum. Everyone needed a pantheon oh, of super of fabulous stars. Of course. And a lot of the girls at that point in Hollywood were like, nah, I'm doing the prairie dress and the hobnail boot, no makeup. And clearly we crave ideals. And so they filled that gap perfectly. This unattainable yeah. beauty. Yeah. Like, un- and, you know, and I grew up, you know, as you know, I grew up reading about... You know, at five, I was reading about Rita Hayworth's, you know, affairs with the Ali Khan and the Aga Khan. And I was, you know, I was reading about Doris Day getting beaten up by her husband. Like, I had this bizarre sophistication, no emotional sophistication, but this bizarre knowledge of all these really adult themes. <laughs> yeah. So, I had this really bizarre idea. And then I, you know, throw in some Jane Austen and I had a really unrealistic approach to how men and women were supposed to work together. And I think romantic obsession to me was something that I thought was, I, you know, what I wanted, that 19th century impossible, tortured romance. I, I could not conceive of quite easy, decades-long picket fence kind of relationships that sustained. I just didn't get that. Right. Nor did I seek it. Right. And nor was there even a chance in hell I'd have it because I was, you know, at the tunnel in New York. You're not going to find marriage there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nor the tunnel on the Gold Coast, which I should just, <laughs> just kind of point that out. So I actually dated a model towards the end of her um, her career, and she had she had a stunning career. She was very, very, very successful. But then suddenly she was 28, and it was a bit, oh, thanks, see ya. And it was towards... And there's no watch and there's no flowers. No. So you better have bought the building. So how did you know that it was starting to dwindle? Well, you start to sort of work the markets where I had a high fashion reputation which was pretty much centred around Paris and Milan and I'd worked at the, the Salon Couture House which was a really big deal and it's still a wonderful thing, you know, a memory. But you start to realise that as the newness is always... The newness that made you happen so quickly, so, almost immediately, is by, by definition going to tarnish um, or things change or maybe the three favourite editors that loved you move job or, you know, and it just ebbs away. Mm. You start to realise, oh, I'm in Athens. I'm doing shows in Athens. I'm not doing... Sh- what? Um, this isn't Paris. <laughs> How did this happen? Why I'm am I eating... Greece. Why am I eating baklava? Why am I eating mousse? What's going on? Um, there's a bit of Germany starts happening. Uh-huh. And if you're really smart, you take that high fashion prestige and you strip mine it in catalogue. But at that point, it all still meant too much for me to do, like, you know, the tacky dishwashing commercial that gives you four years of residuals. Now, of course, I would probably do that. Um, So you become... It's the last steps before freeway and you realise you're a money-making machine, nothing more. There's nothing to build towards. It's time to wind the shop down. Luckily... Now, I used to film backstage... I used to film everything backstage. I've got the most extraordinary... I've just had it digitally. I haven't seen it yet. I've just had it transferred digitally. I've got hours of clubs, fashion shows in the 80s. It'll be bizarre. It's almost like I've psychologically got to brace myself to see it. So you had a high 8 camera with you? All the time. I was constantly filming and observing. So it was... And I guess I was lucky too that I was attracted to mind people, to journalists and to people in my later years in New York. I, w- I became a club DJ. I, s- I wasn't ready to do normal. I couldn't do it. 
I could not be a vet. You I just couldn't, couldn't come to civilian it. life. Couldn't do it. So it still had to be camp and outrageous and dotted with freaks. And it's what was what was the last photo shoot where you went? Okay, I'm going to have to go do something else. Oh, it was awful. It was um, it was for Border, which is a sort of a cataloging magazine in Germany. And I remember there was this stylist, and I'd worked with really phenomenal stylists. And this woman was just like, "Well, I bought sixty coloured, I bought sixty pairs of gloves. I don't know which colour." And I thought, "Oh my god." Um, and I did a lot of Irish knitwear in Germany. They love that aesthetic of, you know, peaches and cream with a bit of tweed and a vintage sports car and because I had that look. So I just was working that for a while. But then it just kind of got to the point where it was all a bit too hard. And, and I also realised that I had almost had a nervous breakdown when I'd finished school. I'd studied so hard to get into law school for something I actually didn't want. So essentially I felt like... You know, I'm owed one big party. Um, and then when that all ended, um, I wanted to do something that kind of still gave me that sense of freedom because models have gobs of free time. You go to Tokyo for 10 days, work like crazy, do four shows a day, and then you're kind of sitting on six months worth of money. So then you kind of you go on holiday. <laughs> You've just got gobs of money and gobs of free time. Trust me. I don't want to sound obnoxious because trust me, I crashed and burned and I did finally learn what it was like to be poor. So I feel I've got the luxury of looking back on the So what did the crash and burn look like? I didn't, like most girls, spend it on gin cigarettes and, you know, poetic boyfriends with leather jackets. I actually bought property. I bought a flat in Paris and I bought a flat in Dublin. And the property crash of the early 90s happened and I lost everything. Oh, God. So I might as well have spent it on gin and cigarettes in the end anyway. And I took the remains of the last little scraps of, you know, money from my Dublin sale. I went scouting for a friend because she knew I'd enjoy that. And I went looking for girls for her agency in, in Greece. Oh. Very plaid jacket. Very Parramatta Road car salesman. And then I ended up in New York and went, actually, this will be my next chapter. New York, New York. And I went straight into the club scene. And I, I did events and I did parties and I did the music. You're a good DJ? Um, I, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've had people come up and say that was the most incredible music I've ever heard. And I've had people come up and hurl abuse at me and uh. spit in my face. Because not everyone can deal with Fred Astaire plus Kiss plus... Me, you know, Mecco. I mean, oh, I girl. was the quirky DJ. Yeah, awesome. 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 But playing those records on big club speakers yeah, pretty is good. really fun. So at what point did... Because you went... You transitioned. This is why I'm so thrilled to be here. And I know we've got a, we're running out of time. Uh, I want to do justice to this second part of your career, which is amazing. Um, you... Yeah, I actually um, became a grown-up. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You became the style director of US Marie Claire. Now, how did you... How did that happen? What happened was I, by the time that happened, I had some years in radio behind me because I, um, Doug Mulray. Australian the, radio legend. Australian radio legend. It's kind of like the early, I guess, Howard Stern. He's got that kind, kind of, of Robin Williams brain. He's got the yeah, big brain, yeah. um, effortlessly anarchic. And was on Triple M in, yeah, in Sydney. and he had yeah, a big yeah. mainstream career. Yeah, big, and, he, big. and he had an everyman quality that plugged in with the Aussie mm-hmm. mentality, but he also was... Very, very special and totally crazy. And he had this idea that he launched with to showcase broadband radio 
before it's time. Um, broad, I mean, broadband. Because you were back in Australia by this point. I, yeah, because I got, oh, did I mention I had got married and had a child? Oh, that's right. You got married and had a child. <laughs> and So you came back to Australia too. I did what so many Aussies do and they default to Australia with a child. They're like, I can't have an American somehow. That'd universal universal health care. Come on. It's pretty it good. It would be weird. Having a baby in America is expensive business. Yeah. Let's be serious. Yeah, it's serious. And the schools here are better. Everything's better. Well, and you know, yeah. it's the fish and chips on Bondi, granny yeah. at the back. And totally. Because it works. Totally. It just works. And I wanted him to know what a cookabra sounded like. I guess yeah. I got very sentimental. So I was able to I kind of see Australia for how great it is. And, and come so back. what, Big, Big Pack Radio? Well, it was called The Basement, and it was an oh, extension of the jazz club. Yeah, in Sydney, there's a famous jazz club called The Basement. Prince played his after party there. It's, it's, it's amazing. special, and, and, and the custodians of it loved the fact that we loved all this music. So I found these archives, and I found, like, you know, the most extraordinary artists would come in and perform after that. There was, they still had a lot of energy. And they might have done a gig the night before and they'd come in and they'd set up an electric keyboard. Like Isaac Hayes played Don't Leave Me This Way on an electric keyboard. And I went, why aren't we showing this? So rather than just playing the music, I started to really get into a lot of the visuals we were showing. And it was internet radio. So our biggest fan base was in America. Yeah, because it, it, it was launched, it was broadband radio. It was launched in Australia way before there was enough broadband pipeline. To, too early. Way they, too they early. Let, they, and some guy just came in and needed to save some bucks and he pulled it about two years before it would have exploded. But um, an Uncle Dougie, and he was kind of like my wicked um, Frankenfurter, except without the fishnets. And he loved having girls kind of frolic in and come in with a dirty T-shirt and do a crazy show that had no radio school smoothness. Yeah. So, um, and I would just drag people in from Circular Quay. Like at once we had this uh, guy who was in full Aboriginal tribal gear dancing, just stuck in the middle with you, and we had Shardy Friday. And I was a big drinker. I mean, we'd go into the basement after my shift and have a rum and coke for lunch. I mean, it was crazy. Again, looking back, I realise I cultivated a life that was somehow very infantile because my job was to go on air for three three hours and be silly and kind of tease and provoke men sitting with their computer in the Florida panhandle. You know, it was fun. And I just became the Aussie rock chick. So I'm more from high fashion and I became, you know, a bit of a Kiss T-shirt wearing fool. And it was a lot of fun. And I, then I did Beauty and the Beast on TV. Yeah, on Fox I became Star, yeah. a panellist. Yeah. Um, With Jeannie. Exactly. Jeannie Little, who was this childhood icon, this kind of cross between a parrot, uh, you know, and a, and, a, and, a, and a macaw. I mean, she was yeah. like, darling. Yeah, and four foot eight. And, and, and wonderful and just like this... You must have towered over her. Towered. And she was gracious and lovely because it was a bit of a shark pit. You know, some women were just delighted to see the new talent arrive and then other women were very gracious and welcoming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, and, and so from that, my buddy... Um, I had a buddy who started working at the new Marie Claire. They were giving it a whole reboot because there was pumpkin lettering and Ashley Simpson on the cover and France went, no, 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 no. What are you doing to our lovely brand? So they hired a really serious, weighty editor, Joanna Coles, who hired a friend of mine as deputy. And she said, they said, we need someone who can, because at that point I was a published journalist. They said, we need someone who can write, but can also deal with all the big fashion personalities, but can also possibly do podcasts. And she went, oh my God. And I'm like, I know someone who can kind of go across the different mediums. So, um, yeah. So you moved to New York? I didn't even hesitate for a second. With the boy? With the boy. Um, and the funniest thing was that my ex had said he wanted to move to New York. So I rang him and said, we could actually do this. You're, you, the new wife, me and Spencer, we can do this. Let's do it. And you, and you did? 
And we did it. Wow, that's a very modern family of you. It's very modern family, and except we just didn't have the crazy, wacky Latina and the gay couple, but everything but. But still, that's pretty amazing that it's yeah. kind of the new family. Like, okay, so we're not together anymore, but we have this child together, and so whoever you're with, it's, well... I think if you had... The one advantage to having that kind of lightness of attitude that I had, which did involve a lot of partying and alcohol was that you can pull off really big things without if, without giving any energy into I can't. So you, it's got a certain... Being crazy all the time has a huge downside, as with, you know, we all know that, and that's boring. But the really fun part, I suppose, about being a bit of a freak is you can do things like move to another country on the spin of a dime. I'm a bit of a gypsy. Mm. Now, I've had to explore why and realise, well, that's not all good. Right. Um, you know, but... And what was it like being on the other side of the page, so to speak? I loved it. Yeah. I became like being a on the left hand commenter. side rather than the, being on the left hand editorial page rather than the right hand. <laughs> well, it was good because for certain things like body image, I realised everyone's talking about the emblematic meaning of models. No one's actually talking about what it's like to be that model starving. I can write that article. Got it. I can do that story. Got you it. You know, so I did a story called Failure to, La- to Lunch for US Marie Claire, and then I became the poster girl for Starving Models. I'm like, shish. So I have to go on air and explain how it all worked. Um, so what can you? S- can you speak for a second to, like, as many people, probably, I don't know, it's probably five people listen to this <laughs> that are models. But everyone Hello, else, five people. The other thousand aren't. But a lot of people worry about, and they have, you know, the, the fat folds, and they worry about their jeans not fitting, and they worry about looking bad. I reckon bad the whole fashion... They look um, bad in Facebook photos. Well, what would you say to people? I who, actually think the body obsession has gone mainstream. Well, because everyone's in photos now that everybody yeah, else sees. Absolutely. They're documented in a way that um, only models were, or only... St- um, so what, what, what are your thoughts there on body image and... And comparison to what we see in mainstream. I completely relate to how someone can have a compulsion and an obsession about getting to the point where they think it's all going to be okay if I just have that body. To to this day, that's kind of in my marrow. If somebody told that to me, I go, I know exactly what you mean. And intellectually, I know that's irrational craziness and that ultimately some of the most miserable people I've ever met had amazing bodies. It's not enough. Um, and that in a way it's not the way home, but I still relate to how powerful it is and it's reinforced every day. I mean, I can't blame anyone else for feeling that way. I did. Um, and I think that there's... I, one thing I did write about, I came up with, is that you do get to the point where you realise there's a happy weight. Everyone has their happy weight where they're actually brimming with health, humming along, their body's efficient. It's where it needs to be without actually being in constant battle with it and it might look nothing like the skinny girl cover on Famous. It might not, you know. And that's what, um, you know, I realised I had to stop obsessing. Like, I'm this big, tall girl that was going in and trying sizes that were built for someone that's a foot shorter and bursting into tears if I had to go past 12. And it's really just a number. It's got nothing... That number has nothing to do with my body. And I, it took a while. But I, I, I guess when you have a kid, you don't want to be that hysterical Beverly Hills housewife who's... You know, I mean, I've done, I've done big, I've done body modification. You know, I've done, I've done things. I've really thinking, I've got to have, I've got to be like this. I can't be with, not looking at my best. I've, I've totally gone there. You know, and I think. Um, what do you mean? Well, I've done like I've had lipo. You know, I had lipo after I had a baby. Um, didn't even hesitate. Didn't think twice. Um, funny story, but. <laughs> How do you feel about that now? Um, I'm, look, part of me... Look, I want to say I feel terribly saddened. 
um, that I would ever need to stick to such a level, but it's probably not my truth. I think my truth is probably somewhere between, wouldn't it be great if I'd spent enough time under a glass pyramid to not need lipo? And feeling that there's something, I suppose, that feeds into my body image issues that's exciting about having more power over how it all turns out. Ah. You know, and I do actually, because I do a lot of beauty writing, um, I cover a lot of procedures. I'm a bit of a Frankenstein's model. I try things, you know, like placenta facials and all manner of wacky things. So I still kind of play in the garden of body modification and wacky. Um, And I guess my new frontier now is, like, because, you know, I mean, I do have opera gloves in the car um, I've done the whole interview in uh, bicycling gloves. <laughs> I do have, out. you know, I do have opera gloves. Like this part of me that still wants to go into self-preservation and not look like a Komodo dragon at sixty-five. Oh, opera gloves! So when you drive, your hands don't get yeah. sunburned and you don't yeah. get Madonna hands. So that's probably not sane. It's, oh, it's, that's fine. It's rational, but it's got a, it's probably got a little flutter of old crazy no, about it's it. It's fine. It's fine. So what would you what would you say to people who are looking at a Facebook photo wishing they weren't tagged in it because they think they look fat? That I suppose ultimately it's going to be way more liberating to not give a shit. Ultimately, that's going to be the coolest thing. You know, um, I kind of got it once. I did a tantric course about how 21st people, century people are yearning for connection, that men are yearning for the sacred feminine, that women are too scared to express because they want to shut it down because they don't want to be repressed. Um, and women are yearning for the one thing that drives them crazy about men, this is the basis of this course, is that men are terrified to connect and so sex can be really dehumanising. So, you know, I was doing a story on all that and she brought in three tantrika and they were like three enabling goddesses and they were actually quite chunky and they were fabulous and I thought, oh, my God, it's their attitude. They've walked in saying, I've got something to show you all about true female power and it actually transcended the visual entirely. I don't even remember what they looked like. But what was memorable was their power. And the men were absolutely mesmerised. And, and that's when I kind of started to see it in action. Ah, the possibility outside the 125th of a second perfectly posed. Yeah. And the actual sexuality and comfort in they the were, body. They were really deep in I rock. Walking around, yeah. Like, I've, been, I've been with a woman like that. I've been with a woman who was, who was bigger, but... Oh, man, she was sexy. I heard this great story about um, Jonathan Ross. Apparently, Trini and Susanna were on the show and a friend of a friend was telling me that he just said, you know what, Who's the skinny one is Trini, right? I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of good that we don't know that, isn't it? Um, Trini, let's say Trini's the skinny one. He went, you know what, Trini's like the high fashion princess diva bitch, but... Oh my god, that's Susanna! Oh my god, I just want to take her in the back room and have her run. like. He just was like, "That's my ideal woman." Like she, yeah, she's right. just lush and and ripe and fertile. So the, I, I mean, the woman in me, it does kind of delight when you see a Nigella Lawson come along, who's all about abundance and clotted cream and mm. creamy cleavage and hip. Yeah, and straight men go nuts over her. It's it makes you. And another thing that I kind of created a shift in me was going into museums and looking at all the old masters and seeing my body up there. Oh, going, they're, oh, they're women, women. That's my body. Yes. Like, I've got big legs. I could crush a man's head between my legs. <laughs> yes. I've got, like, I've got a, a softness in my belly. I've got very soft arms. I'm a creamy milkmaid. Oh, my God, there I am. i go for that. It's, yeah. You know, not that I haven't explored elsewhere, but that's, it goes back to that Helmut Newton book. 
Yeah. It goes back to that Helmut Newton book and those, honestly, it was those early Playboys my dad had. Like yeah. those late 70s women, mid 70s, late 70s, like women. Dangerous. Curves, yeah. hair, proper boobs. It was just. And all the supers, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, like the 80s, it was Tatiana Puttitz, it was very athletic. Cindy Crawford was a beach baby. She was a Malibu bunny. You know, she wasn't the malnourished. Yeah. And obviously, there's a pendulum, pardon me, there's a pendulum effect. And obviously, um, the diminutive elfin, you know, artful dodger London kid that's skinny is a whole other genius thing. But it's, it is lunacy to try and squish yourself into that if you're my height. That's crazy. I yeah. did, though. I gave it a good college try. <laughs> Sweet. And so now on Sundays, people will open up the newspaper and find your work. What's it like to be working for... It's pretty much got the largest circulation of any magazine in Australia, doesn't it? It is, um, yeah, because... The Sunday, Sunday style? Everyone's, yep, and everybody still reads the papers, so it's a real Aussie On ritual. On Sunday. Yeah. yeah. It's an Aussie ritual. Um, the paper's very blokey, but the women are kind of going straight for the Sunday style, and it's arch, and it's fun, and it's pop culture, but kind of told with a certain cheekiness and irreverence because we felt that, you know, when the company felt that, that women, urban women liked that. they And in a way, like, the men's magazines do that so beautifully, that kind of knowing, urbane tone. You know, everyone felt the women's market was ready for that. Um, and we've had a great response. It's, I mean, it's a... I love it. You know, like, I've... Um, uh, my son, when he was older and he entered his teens, decided he would rather alternate rather than twice in one week between parents, once one week with me, one week with his dad. That opened up a whole new world because I could go on a four- or five-day trip and wouldn't even impact his life at all. And so one minute I'm playing going to Fashion Week, back in the fray, and then the other next week I'm making sandwiches, you know, f- for, you know, Bondi Primary. I mean, it's crazy. But... Um, now we're at the point where he's a few years off adulthood, not far at all. He's taller than me now. So who knows what a gypsy I'll become after that. But for the moment, my life is a combination of desk-bound, lots of responsibilities, and then a smattering of, can you go on to London on this weekend? There's an event we need you to go to. So I like that. Come and live in LA. We'll get a great house together. <laughs> Could you imagine the movie nights? No, really. Come yeah. and live in LA. Uh, I'll get a place with a yard. We can have a dog. And can yeah. we can write that all-important script and make... No, no, no. And that way, because, you know, I travel a lot. You travel a lot. Um, I'm serious. It could uh, be great. You, you boy can come and visit. Uh, so, in this industry, like, in, well, you, you work in an industry... You, you work in an industry that is changing, that is, parts of it are in death throes. Parts of it have already died. Yeah, yeah, that's heading towards an very, iceberg. What, what's it like to work in... Like, just, I don't know, we, we have to get out of here. But what's it like to work in an industry that is facing its, its own doom? You know what's happening? Every time someone gets retrenched, instead of looking for another job in the same playing ground, they actually go digital. Got it. Um, And I think what's happening also on the digital platform is it hasn't actually hit the ad market yet, but one thing that makes me feel like Sunday Style is kind of cocooned is somehow the paper... It's Rather than a monthly magazine that's for sale that has to prove itself an audition each month to be bought... It's almost like it's on this groundswell of, you know, 2.4 million people that read the paper. Um, and it's it's actually comes with it. So I feel like I've got... There's a nice, delicious old-schoolness about working on a magazine, but we've got... We, I kind of feel safe. I feel safe. But at the same time, hey, you know, we, if, the publishing... the It will be unrecognisable in 10 years. I mean, it's like that famous photo where it shows you the second-to-last pope getting sworn in and there's one mobile phone and then it shows you the next one and no-one's even watching. They're all watching through digital. It's, it's warp speed. Um, 
And you no, know, a lot of people are saying, you know, never, never work for a dying industry. But there's a lot of diehards. It's a changing industry. It's not a dying industry. No, it's, it's morphing, that's all. Yeah. It's morphing. Must be an interesting place to And work. I think it'll be fascinating too because... But people still want stories and they still want content. You know, show me someone now that doesn't log on almost first thing in the morning to plug in to the human stories. Geez, 14 times a day, minimum, most yeah. people. So I don't think journalists have anything to worry about on that score. They've just got to make sure they're on the right tablet. Right. They're in the right forum. Everyone still wants the stories. Everybody still wants the movies. Everybody still wants the Okay, the now, content. before we get out of here, we, now we have to leave, and I want to end on a quick story, and you can on, we'll, find an, we'll find a way, we'll find a story for you to tell. We have to leave because you're about to go and interview Naomi Campbell. I know, isn't that brilliant and prescient that on the very day that you're sending me into the TARDIS back to the 80s, I'm going to go and be in the presence of the ultimate diva queen. And do you want to take a punt on how long she's going to keep me waiting? Well, tell me your Naomi Campbell story from before today. Oh, well, Naomi, look, I actually remember once, and I'll see how we go, whether I'll remind her, but um, Matthew, the famous Matthew, who's this sort of acerbic Hornsby boy who doesn't take kindly to celebrity ass kissing in true Aussie poppy chopping style, he was doing a um, a show backstage and there was cones that had to be inserted on the girls' heads and she went, that's not going to fit on me, I'm not wearing that. And he just said, well, it won't if you ram it down like that, dear. And he went straight in with... His Sydney, you know, his wonderfully intact Sydney vitriol. <laughs> and it was on. And it was a Mexican standoff. And the designer said, you have to apologise. He went, I'm not apologising. But he said there was a begrudging respect. There was a glimmer of respect um, because he, he actually went her. So maybe she gets bored with everyone being scared. Oh, interesting. Okay, before we leave, what is your message to young women who are listening to this, thinking about... A, maybe thinking about a career in modelling or thinking about, I, I wish I looked better in that dress that I bought. I would say the message to young women is you're going to look back when you're, you know, let's say somewhere like between 45 and 55 and realise how exquisite you are. I promise you, whatever you're doing or not doing, you are gorgeous. There's something about youth that's wonderfully silly, wonderfully romanticised and so underappreciated. No woman really gets how gorgeous she is when she's in her early 20s. You could do probably nothing at all. And also, um, if you actually get in touch with your own sense of beauty and worth, you'll be about 20 times sexier than anything any person that's packaging a beauty product could provide you. So that's a great bonus and it's a lot of fun and I love nothing more than playing with beauty products and beauty procedures. But there is no doubt that actual self-acceptance and confidence is the hottest thing. And, I mean, from a straight man, right, would you oh, agree? Oh, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. If somebody's torturing themselves, um, you know, and nibbling on the iceberg on a date, it's, it's, it's not sexy. It's not the sacred feminine. Yeah. So I would, I would actually also say if you're interested in modelling, have a game plan. Buy the building, have the degree on the other side, and just remember it's kind of like the, you know, the difference between the junkie stripper and the stripper who's this mythical stripper that Chris Rock says doesn't exist who's paying her way through law school. It's like, have a game plan and just take as much money as you possibly can and run! (laughs) Or cartwheel. Cleo Glide, I love that you're my friend. (laughs) Thank you. Kisses and all the cracks, my love. (laughs) God damn, you're good. And that, friends and lovers was Cleo Glide. Find her on Twitter at Cleo, C-L-E-O, Glide, G-L-Y-D-E. Let her know you heard her here. She's pretty ace. You can read her every weekend. She's in the paper every weekend. Humongous subscription base, that magazine. 
anyway, thanks for listening. I'm back with my Vitamix, which makes me happy. So I'm drinking coffee and drinking smoothies, and it's good, you know? I like it. It's nice. Gee, there's a lot of crap going on in the world at the moment, isn't there? So maybe this week just, I don't know, just be kind where you can. See how that works out for you. That's what I'm going to do anyway. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to do a second year with you guys. This is going to be good. All right. And see if I can't catch a nap. I've been up since three. <laughs> so I wish for you what I wish for myself. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm.